Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Hello and welcome to Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, I'm Ian Stone. I'm here with James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Hello, guys. Hello, Hi, Ian. Hello. It's another joyous introduction. Oh, to our lovely podcast. I know, I know, I know, I know. Listen, we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, about, I don't know, 12, 14 hours after that shit show we watched yesterday. Um, the last minute goal, absolutely what we deserved. I think we can agree um, and we'll get to that. But what other last minute goals? Sickness. Um, I mean, there are a choice of hundreds that Arsenal have uh, let in over the years. Uh, we had to narrow it down to three. Amy, what you got? I am going to go for really one that made me feel about as bad as it was possible to feel, which was uh, Naeem from the halfway line, as the song went. Oh, oh. Uh, in 1995, Arsenal had had the uh, the glory of winning the Cup Winners' Cup the year before, which was one of the great moments, uh, and went to Paris. What could be better than going to Paris for a European final, eh, lads? And um, it, was, it was a horror show in the end. George Graham had, had been fired from Arsenal midway through the season. They were under the temporary stewardship of Stuart Houston and the lads uh, sort of took it upon themselves to you know to to get the team to the final and, and, and try and rescue what had been an extremely weird season an ex-Tottenham player scored in the last seconds from an absurd part of the pitch well we're heading for a penalty shootout Naeem or are we can you believe what you've seen Naeem, once of Spurs, has taken the Cup Winners' Cup, surely, from Arsenal for Zaragoza. Seaman went back and back, but it's in, and Arsenal are beaten. There you go, so all in all, not a fun night. No, no. Were you at that game, James, by the way? No. I wasn't. I was watching it on TV. Oh, Lucky at home. escape, James. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, still painful. I was though. there. 
I was there. I was. I had nice seats actually. I watched. I was right behind the ball as it looped over, and as soon as he hit it, you thought, "Oh, oh he's in trouble here," and uh, uh, and in it went. And um, I ended up later on. I got split up from my friends. I ended up in some Irish bar. And I, I bumped into this guy and he was, I sort of vaguely knew him and he didn't have a place to stay. I said, oh, you know, keep on my floor. That's OK. And at four o'clock in the morning, I woke up to him having a pee on my floor, just drunkenly having a pee on my floor. Wow. <laughs> and I kicked him out of the room. Uh, and um, yeah, there was um, there was a lot of talk about, you know, me inviting a young man back to my room and then at four o'clock in the morning kicking him out with a stain on his trousers. Anyway, but... Uh, Who said gallantry was, was dead? <laughs> I know I did him a favour. He was drunk. What have you got, James? Last minute sickness. What have you chosen? Well, I was... So I was going to choose the 2001 FA Cup final. There's a bit of debate about if it was last minute enough. I think it was 87th minute. I've just had a look, Michael Owen. It was late uh, enough. It was late enough, wasn't it? I mean, and also yeah. in a cup final, uh, very painful. I think Freddie Umberg gave us the lead. It was two goals, basically, in the last 10 minutes of the game. Um, so that was pretty cruel. But actually, one I remembered as well, that was real last kick of the game, last gasp stuff was another 2-1 defeat to Liverpool. And it was Neil Mellor oh. scoring his volley at Anfield. Do you remember that? And it was that was the game where Patrick Vieira scored the most beautiful goal for Arsenal. And you feared it would be lost, kind of uh, amid the memory of Neil Mellor's wonder volley. And he was hailed as like the future of Liverpool, the new Robbie Fowler. Obviously, it didn't quite pan out like that. But yeah, it was a really sickening goal. And one of those that's... You know, you just sort of can't do anything about it. It's a one in a million hit. My goodness! Where did that come from? The right foot of Neil Mellor. It's probably the last kick of the game. All right, if you want a last minute signal, I was in. Uh... I was in India, in Mumbai, doing the comedy store. The comedy store opened a club in Mumbai and I was out there doing the gig. I mean, it was just before I went on, Arsenal were playing Liverpool uh, at the Emirates and I got a uh, an alert on my phone, essentially, as the compare was saying, please welcome to stage Ian Stone, that said that Arsenal had scored a goal. I think Robin Van Persie scored in the 99th minute. Right, there was eleven minutes or something of uh, of added time. In the ninety ninth minute, I got a ping on my phone. I thought, "Hello, we've won. Go on, all happy." Come off half an hour later, Luis Suarez has equalised in the hundred and first minute. But after a mistake, not Luis Suarez, Dirk Kout, in fact, uh, equalised after I think a mistake by Emmanuel Ibui, who I loved, of course. But um, yeah, that one hurt. That one really hurt, especially as I'd sort of gone on thinking we've won, and then came off. I remember the gig being quite nice and then uh, coming off thinking, what a great evening, and then equaliser for Liverpool in the, 100, in the 101st minute. I mean, I've talked about last minute. I was, I've never known a game with 11 minutes of injury time. Anyway, um, we're doing all this, and it's partly Amy's suggestion, and I understand why, is because it, the alternative, which we're going to do now, is to talk about Everton 2, Arsenal 1. I 
tweeted at the end of the game uh, exactly what we deserved. Fucking terrible performance, right? Which is really my mood and it continues to be my mood afterwards. James, your immediate reaction, probably the most concerning performance of the season. Uh, Amy, uh, I, uh, Amy, what did you got your hand up? What did you say, Amy? Well, I just when you when you mentioned your tweet there and I just was wondering what had happened to Ian Optimism Stone. Um, well, Ian Optimism Stone was beaten to a pulp over 90-something minutes. I mean, this is it us... for you, though. I mean, we, we need to know on the kind of uh, stone-ometer well, of optimism. Am I out, is what, you're, is what well, you're asking? I'm just wondering what you're thinking, because, you know, you, you haven't looked on the half-full uh, side of the glass as far as I can remember for, well, possibly ever. So where, just what's yeah. going on with your glass? <laughs> My glass was was uh, quite badly emptied last night. Um, I mean, I th- you know what? I tell you what. What I think is that we're going to have these these. Uh, bumps in the road. We've talked about them before, and that was a pretty major one. And we can get into it's the a reasons bloody crater. Why. It was massive. It was massive. It, I, there's no getting away from it. Uh, and I, and I'm certainly not feeling as happy as I was say a couple of weeks ago. Um, but we are the jump leads for any, as I think it was T- Tim Payton today on, on Twitter said, we are the jump leads for any teams uh, who are having a bad season. We can uh, definitely get you started again. Um, James, why? can I just ask, why was it the most concerning performance of the season? Because while there have been other bad performances and other bad results, I think in most of those cases there were sort of mitigating circumstances. You know, if, they went to Man City and they got hammered, but they had 10 men and the transfer business wasn't complete. They lost at Brentford, but, you know, there was a COVID outbreak and the transfer business wasn't complete. Um, it's sometimes you come up against a team who's just much, much better than you, as was the case at Anfield. But kind of none of those really apply here. There isn't um, an excuse, shall we say. No for the mitigating circumstances at all. Really, were there? Well, in fact, the circumstances really should have been in Arsenal's favour. I mean, this was an Everton side absolutely sapped of confidence with fans that were planning a a protest, a walkout in the first half. Um, You know, had Arsenal imposed themselves early on and taken an early lead in this game, I think that stadium was absolutely ready to turn on the home team and the home manager. I think yeah. some Everton fans were even kind of willing it to implode because they're so angry at the way their club's being run. Um, and so really the conditions couldn't have been more perfect for Arsenal coming into the game against a really out of form side. And I think that's, again, what what's so damning about the performance is that they didn't produce when so much was with them. Amy, you just nodded along there as James was talking and... and- there isn't a lot to add to that, is it? They just, none of them really turned up, did they? I mean, we sort of talked about Not this a little really. bit last week, but uh, it feels, I, I, it's so exhausting to have this situation where Arsenal are kind of blowing the wind out of their own sails. You know, it's not necessarily other people that are pushing them over, but they almost seem to push themselves over sometimes. Um and that's what's so frustrating. I think when the team sheet came out, there was a certain logic. It looked like he was going for, you know, a, a, um, a tendency to pick players who maybe he thought he could rely upon a bit more in a bit of a fight. Um, but as it turned out, you know, Everton were, you know, quite aggressive in one or two cases, overly aggressive. Um, and Arsenal 
wilted in those conditions rather than got fired up and said, come on then, you know, we're going to... I thought after the incident with Tomiyasu, for example, you've seen teams sometimes take something like that and use it and feel, you know, dismayed that they haven't had the benefit of what they thought was uh, a decision that would would help them, punishing the opposition, and, you know, show a bit of reaction. Come on, you know? And instead, you just saw more duels that people were uh, not particularly committed to. It bugs me watching a team who look fearful of 50-50s. And I think that is something that, that is latent in Arsenal at the moment, when everything's going for them. Somebody described it uh, on Twitter. Um, sorry, I can't remember who was like Goldilocks football. You know, if everything is just so that the team can, can perform. But, uh, you know, you have to be able to perform when things are not perfect, a little bit too hot or a little bit too cold. But I was thinking about porridge then. I was trying to work out what it meant <laughs> by that. Oh, sorry. But, um... <laughs> yeah, I think that's I know, what the analogy I... was about. And, and I thought it was a good one. Right, OK. <laughs> are we worried, by the way, about our strikers? Are we seriously worried now? I mean, Eddie Nketiah came on and actually he did OK on the left and he and he created that chance at the end for Ober and But he missed an absolute sitter, uh, a chance that I think he might have eaten up a couple of years ago. Ober then missed that chance, which I then tweeted. That puts the bloody tin hat on that, as my granddad would have said. Lacquer did essentially nothing for 85 minutes. We have scored less goals than, I believe, Everton now. Uh, Certainly, I think we're down with Palace 15 or 18 in 15. James, I mean, Ober's going to the African Cup of Nations. Um... We really are going to be left a bit thin if Lacquer isn't scoring and doesn't look like Eddie and Ketia will, and Martinelli might have picked up an injury. Where do the goals come from in the next three or four games? Well, a word on Eddie and Ketia because I thought it was a sort of a baffling substitution, and I do think that the fact that Eddie was brought on before Bamiang, before Nicola Pepe, speaks to a bigger problem surrounding Arsenal's attacking players and makes me concerned about maybe some of the relationships there that Arteta would make that call. To be fair to Eddie, I've seen him absolutely hammered and he should have scored that chance. But I thought he actually offered more energy, threat and combination play than our other centre-forwards have in the last few games. Um, Nevertheless, clearly... Attack is a problem. And and I think, you know, when it comes to Mikel Arteta's team, it is the great sort of unanswered question, really. Can he coach, construct a coherent, threatening attack? And we talk about misses by Nketiah or misses by Bamiang. The truth is Bamiang has always missed chances. And if you go back to his best seasons, I bet you'll find some corking misses from six yards out. But his... The thing is, he's always been a guy who's been able to get on the end of lots of opportunities. And I do think we place great emphasis on these moments because they are relatively rare within games. I just think Arsenal do not create enough goal-scoring opportunities. And yes, the strikers should finish their dinner. They could be doing better. But I wonder if the pressure on those moments is increased by the fact that we arrive at those points so infrequently. Yeah, I so think frequently that's true. and so it... desperately, you know, we're more often than not in a very tight situation, which also inc- yeah. increases the pressure. 
And this other thing about uh, uh, about Mikel Arteta bringing on Eddie Nketiah before Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, before Nicola Pepe, and it, it seems this seems to be a conversation we have quite regularly about Mikel Arteta, and these substitutions are less about what is good for the team and more about imposing his own discipline. We had the whole thing with, with uh, uh, Aubameyang last year with the Tottenham game and making him sit there for 90 minutes and watch the game because he was late. I mean... Uh, it sort of reminds me of in comedy when you're an open spot or when you're a newer act and somebody heckles you and you go in far too hard on them in return and it smacks of inexperience. And Do you feel, Amy, there's something in that, that, that Mikel Arteta, the inexperience means he's sort of overreacting to, to perceived slights and, and feelings that he's not being obeyed as he should? I don't know. Um, I think you have to have knowledge to answer that properly. Um but I, you've got knowledge, Amy. Well, not the not the kind of knowledge that you have if you're in the training ground on the training pitch every every day. Um, I, I, I don't. It's obviously a part of his game. I think he is aware that is something that needs refinement. You know, the man management side. That's not an easy thing to pull off straight away. But we. But you can't make an. I know Gary. I heard what Gary Neville said. But we. That was Gary Neville projecting. We don't know if that's true or not. It might be, but for it the might listener, not be. For the, for the listener, he said he thinks he's going to have a problem with Aubameyang going forward. But you don't know if you think he's just speculating Look, a little bit. I do, because he's also not in, in there watching. I mean, he's obviously got a, a, a different view because he was a player, so he can read signs and smell energy and probably sense things that feel comparable to dressing rooms he might have been in or training grounds he might have been on. But from what I've been told... There's an element of bewilderment about Aubameyang's lack of form, and he looks like a guy that's having a confidence crisis. Now, we don't know whether what's going on is because there's bad vibes and something not working or lack of trust, or a player who's going through an absolute confidence crisis um, right now, or something else. But Certainly in terms of the numbers that Arsenal have for Bamiyang, there's been apparently no let-up whatsoever in the kind of intensity of his runs, the amount that he's running. Um, they're not concerned about that sort of thing. The chances, the number of chances he's getting, it's, it's just the case really of... Dog's got to say... Um, <laughs> Rocky feels differently, I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, he's got his own ideas. I'm just not quite sure what he's getting at. Um but yeah, anyway, I, I'm just saying I, that there are all sorts of theories at the moment. And Rocket's got the best one of the lot, if only we know what it was. But uh, If you listen very carefully, he's saying Arteta out. Just very, very quickly. Actually, he's saying Rocky out. He wants to go outside. Hang on a sec. Okay. Go on, go and do that. And we'll come back to it. I know we did this the other day and we've done it a few times. But Amy, you're going to write about Thomas Partey. We don't want to give it all away. He told Sky Sports he'd give himself four out of ten for his time at Arsenal so far. I think the shot he had um, may well have been the worst one yet, actually. I mean, yeah, three out of ten for that one. That Oh, if... I mean, he's going to clear a stand one of these days, isn't he? I, I, <laughs> he nearly it, did last night, I've got to tell you. He basically hit, because I was in the ground, he went right to the top of the upper tier. There, I, there was disbelief from the Everton fans at quite how far it got. They loved it. 
Well, I'm glad there's something to cheer yeah. them up. Can I ask you both? What I mean, the camera went. You wouldn't have probably seen this, James, at the at the ground, but the camera kind of close upped on Thomas Partey after that shot, and actually, I sort of looked at his face and. I, it was almost one of those where I sort of felt like I need, I wanted to look away. I was almost embarrassed, not just for him, but also just the feeling that I wonder if so, if he might be taking some of these ridiculous shots because he's just feeling really desperate. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that he's, you know, he's obviously his game is suffering badly and he's a, a very uh, uh, poor imitation of the Thomas party of Atletico Madrid at the moment. And I also think it's kind of interesting how the optics of it all work out. So, for example, if we compare it to, say, Willian, so, you know, these were both players who Mikel Arteta really wanted, really fought for and really believed in and brought in and was very happy about. And when you think about how quickly the uh, Arsenal fans became, let's just say, impatient with Willian, um, I think Partey has had a, a lot more latitude because he doesn't come with that baggage, obviously. And people are sort of willing him to turn it around. And because he seems like such a nice guy, you know, which I don't know whether that's facts or not. But I mean, lots of pe- a lot more people seem to be getting very frustrated by watching his performances lately and running out of sort of sympathy or an explanation for what might be going on. But it looks to me like he's a guy who also is finding this incredibly difficult to be so sort of exposed and in a way that, you know, I don't think he has before in his career. A long-term period of not being able to perform to the manner that he feels he can perform and quite possibly not even knowing why himself. It was fascinating to hear him say that he felt like he was still adapting to the Premier League. And you think, hang on. This is a guy in his peak age with plenty of experience uh, who's played at an extremely big club in some extremely massive games. And all the attributes that he has or had when he was playing with Atletico are exactly the kind of things that you would want to transplant into Arsenal. So why hasn't he? What's the story? And this this theory may be completely mad, but... Is it a coincidence that, you know, often or occasionally players who come from Atletico, which is a very specific, very singular type of a club with a very specific and singular way of playing uh, under the instruction of Diego Simeone, it's not that unusual for players to leave there and find it incredibly difficult to reproduce what they were expected to do. You can look at Saul at Chelsea. You can look at Griezmann when he went to Barcelona. It's just and since gone back, yeah. Exactly. And, I mean, and, and has uh, anyone you know, done well coming from Atletico now? <laughs> and maybe we should have asked this question before we spent 15 million quid on him. Uh, <laughs> is all I'm saying. James, what do you think of that point that Amy made? Because I mean, I you know, we have talked about, about Thomas Partey quite a bit, but th- th- he's not getting any better at the moment. Well, I, I think that there's something to it. I think it's not just the I think it's not just the club or the coach, but it's the team that he had around him. And Partey was a very impressive player at Letico, but he was a, a cog in a machine. You know, he was part of a unit. And at Arsenal, 
he's really one of the stars and he's asked to play in a way which I think is quite exposing. You know, Arsenal's defenders give him the ball, two or three guys around him, and they say, go on, mate, wriggle out of that. And when your confidence drops, that's asking a lot of somebody. And we saw against Everton him going back to the centre-halves maybe more frequently than we're used to because I do think that confidence just isn't there. I mean, Amy said, spoke about the, the camera shot, which I didn't see after he took the shot, but I had seen his interview in the build-up to the game. And I found that quite a difficult watch, to be honest, to see somebody... You know, I know he was commended for his honesty, but there's a reason that managers tend to come out and back players and build them up publicly. You do have to be protective of these people's confidence because it's so integral to them performing and to the way they play. And I have to admit, I was quite shocked to see him looking uh, and sounding quite so fragile. Timid is the word I would use. And I didn't see that shot either because, honestly, Amy, I looked away. When he took that shot and it hit whatever it did, the top of the stand, I actually turned away from the TV in disgust because I thought, I can't. But why is he even attempting this? Just lay it sideways. I'm sure we'll have um, more of these uh, conversations. Uh, we do agree that Godfrey should have had a red card, but to be honest, it sort of feels irrelevant, really, because we... Let's be fair, we got away with two goals that should have probably been goals, but VAR, there was my, you know, marginal offsides. We could have been stuffed by Everton. Um, Amy, I'll ask you this first. Uh, if we don't get a result against Southampton and then we have some tough games, we've got West Ham after that, we've got Man City coming up. Um, we do seem to be a club that lurch into crisis quite quickly, but we could be in a serious crisis come the new year. Maybe. We seem to be a club that has this ability to kind of bounce around in between crisis and then the feeling of like we're trying to progress here. I think that's the the slightly more complex element to it. If it was just pure crisis, <laughs> then there comes a time when, you know... <laughs> we get used to it, yeah. Well, either that or, you know, everybody really makes feelings felt and things have to change a bit, but... I think it's this, uh, you know, it wouldn't amaze me if Arsenal put a few results back together and slowly look like, you know, things are, are better and then there's another sort of setback. But no, to use James's word of fragile, I think the situation feels very fragile at the moment. And it's uh, it, it, it's really a worry because when you think about the whole not being in Europe scenario, you know, that there's... I was always uh, quite supportive of being in Europe at any cost. I mean, not necessarily the conference, but, you know, one of the more mainstream European competitions. And I actually miss the Europa League, I'll be honest. Apart from anything else, you know, when we're watching a kind of mid-table season of ups and downs and, you know, it's torturous at times, it's nice to have those kind of changes of pace that you get from Europe, the different teams, the different uh, slightly more usually in the group stage relaxed uh, or some different players getting a go I think it's been you know a shame in a way but however obviously there's a school of thought a lot of people share which is that season out of Europe should be a perfect um, set of circumstances to really rebuild with time with a space on the, uh, the training ground to do more detailed work for things to bed in, to not be travelling, to not be so tired, to not be so drained, to not have such demands on the players physically and psychologically. 
But I think it's a worry that without Europe, <laughs> where Arsenal sit right now feels pretty similar to last year. Yeah. Eighth does feel like it beckons, does it not, James? You know, five minutes ago, we were talking about fourth and looking, thinking, yeah, come on, win this game. It's going to be a, a, a genuine attempt to get top four. Yeah, and, and I have to say, I, I um, personally, I was always pretty cautious on that just because while I could sense the opportunity and clearly the opportunity was there, I think I was always realistic about the limits of this team. And Amy called it a mid-table season. And I do sometimes think that these massive undulations that we're experiencing is just, that's what being mid-table is. You have good runs and you have bad runs. And as Arsenal fans, we're not particularly accustomed to that. You know, losing a couple of games on the bounce is a crisis when you're Arsenal. But when you're a team who's bouncing around between 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, that's what happens. It doesn't make it any more comfortable. It doesn't make it any more palatable. But I, I do sort of think it tells us something about where we are. And... Yeah, I mean, listen, those games at Manchester United and Everton did present us with a chance to really push on, really stake a claim, show that we could be the team that wants this fourth place that seemingly so many other clubs don't seem to want to from the way they've been playing. And I think we have had a very clear answer on that. And the the clear answer is we're not there. (laughs) Don't be silly. Yeah. What are you thinking about? and And I think Amy's right. I think that this team could well pick up some results. You know, they've got Southampton next. I, I actually think they'll beat Southampton. It wouldn't surprise me if they won a, a few games. But then they'll lose one. And then they might lose another. And then they'll swing around again. I just think that's kind of where we are. It's so finely balanced. It's um, so exhausting, though, James. It is think? exhausting. It is. It is exhausting. I think we can all agree. And you had to travel back from uh, Liverpool last night. <laughs> I can't even... I mean, I just turned the telly off and sort of grumped around the house for an hour. You had to get on a train. That's true. So, uh, but I am getting so, paid, as I always say. So, you know, it's, it's a bit different. Fair play, though. Fair but, play. You are suffering for all of us. But you're right, though, James. You know, I can see us winning. We've got Southampton at home. And I would be shocked if we didn't get a result against Southampton. West Ham, though, I'm not so sure. But I guess... We'll see. Are we not obligated to talk about the elephant in the room that we haven't really mentioned much today? Well, a lot of people were um, quite strong in their opinions about the manager uh, after the game last night. I don't know whether that was just heat of the moment. Oh, no. Social media kind of or whatever. But He's there. He's there till the end of the season, isn't he? I think, I I mean, unless something radical happens... I think they're going to give him a season. If we don't get top four or certainly top six, I imagine he'll be gone. But I can't see... If they if they weren't going to sack him after three games, we're, we're in, you know, we're not in the worst position in the world. It, it, I don't think he's going to move on. There's a lot of noise on social media, but there's always a lot of noise on social media. Does anyone disagree with that? That, that Arteta will be there till the end of the season? I think that's... No. All, all evidence suggests that, that that's... That's Arsenal's feelings as a club. I, I think that's uh, it. They're very know. committed mm. to Mikel. They've committed enormous resource as well, financially. Yes. I think that having stuck with him at the start of the season, they'll certainly stick with him right now. And actually, when you ask me about sort of what the most likely outcome here is in terms of will he be sat before the end of the season, I actually think it's more likely that Arsenal will spend money in January mm. than that they will sack Mikel. 
I was just about that, to say, like, do, you know, does it does he need some help? And if he needs help, what kind of help is it? Is that just different players which will require more money? And are we us? He needs us <laughs> to help him out in some way, to give him some sort of tactical <laughs> advice. Why don't you bring on Nicola Pepe once in a while? We've spent seventy two million quid on the bloke. He can be quite good once in a while. Why are you bringing on a guy who's out of contract? Why are you keeping Granite Jacker on for the whole game when Laconga and Maitland Miles? We've all had these questions, and he does make mistakes. But all managers make mistakes. I just think we have to suck it up, don't we, Amy? At the moment? Oh, I mean, I, I, like you say, I can't see anything changing imminently. But even if, you know, even were it to change, which I think, given the circumstances, is, is not on the agenda. But first of all, who on earth would you be appointing? I mean, <laughs> it's really not no. easy when you're looking at, you know, who's around. And second of all, I was thinking about this before, right? If something mad happened and, you know, suddenly there was a feeling, okay, this can't go on. I don't even think there's. I'm not convinced there's anyone at the at the club that you could sensibly appoint as a caretaker. Granite Xhaka. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not helpful? Well, uh, and when Freddie got the job oh. as a caretaker, he got very little support. You know, so I would worry about that period. It's not um, if that were to come. Yeah, yeah, I, it's very hypothetical. It's... I, I just think, yeah, I think Arsenal will feel like. We've spent all this money on Arteta. <laughs> what if we get in a new manager and he says, I don't want Ben White or I don't want Aaron Ramsdale. Like they, they've committed all this resource to Arteta's plan. I don't see them changing course right now. James, do you think it's significant that of all the new players that have come in and all the funds that have been allocated to rebuilding the team, very little of it has gone on forward players? I think it's very significant. Because I think really, all the all the players you might define as Arteta's guys, you know, the guys that he's spent money on and, and he's fought to get and he's asked for some significant funds to get. Really, with the exception of Willian, who came on this uh, slightly interesting um, Bosman deal, um, and Erdegaard, who, you know, has come in relatively recently after his loan period, um unless I'm missing someone, all the changes that have happened in terms of, of the offensive part of the team have come because the young players have come through and, you know, st- grabbed their opportunities. Yeah, I mean, they did hand out the the contract to Aubameyang, which was, a, I guess, a kind of uh, strategic decision around mm. strikers. But Arteta's never bought a forward, per se. Um and, and I, I think that is interesting. I mean, it, there's. A, I think there is a sense that Arsenal are kind of having to, in, in much the same way uh, that they had to sort of wait out Meza Ozil in some respects. It almost feels like we're having to wait out Aubameyang and Lacazette. We just what? <laughs> we just signed. What, 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 what's well, what's, your, what's that? Aubameyang. It was when we signed Aubameyang, and I wasn't. I understood why people thought he was. We were de- We had to sign a Bamiyan to make some sort of statement, and I didn't really feel like that. But we see, you know, people on Twitter signed the ting or whatever they say, and uh, and he signed mm. it, and uh, there was much rejoicing. And we haven't really had much of a performance out of him since then. Um, so suddenly no, we're I, waiting I, I, yeah, for I'm him, not, um... or we'll see if we can get some knockdown offer on the guy that was going to rescue the club and take us to another level. 
I'm not defending it at all. I don't think it's a healthy position to be in, but it just feels like uh, there is a bit of paralysis around the attacking situation at Arsenal. Nevertheless, I, I'm not entirely convinced that you drop another centre-forward into this and suddenly we're scoring <laughs> goals. No. I, I, you know, I, I think there are bigger structural and tactical issues under underpinning it all. I don't see that... Dominic Calvert-Lewin turns up and gets 30 goals for Arsenal in this team. Um, I think Aubameyang struggles. He has to take some responsibility for that. But I think, you know, has there been a clear, coherent plan for how to use him? Last season, he started on the left, ended up in the middle. This season, we've seen him playing with Lacazette without him. Now he's on the bench. Eddie Nketch is coming on before him. You know, when you give a player a three-year contract, you'd like to think you've got some idea of how you're going to use that player over those three years. How you're going to implement in the team? How you're going to play to their strengths? How you're going to get the best out of them? And I don't. At think we've some seen point, that. I would definitely, and we don't. We're not going to do this now. But at some point, I'd definitely like to have a discussion about whether this team, the negativity and the lack of forward thinking, if you like, of this team reflects Mikel Arteta as a player, perhaps, because they they do say that teams reflect their manager and he was quite a cautious uh, player I think we can we can sorry Amy you're smiling we can have this conversation but I'd I'd like to move on well I was just gonna straight away just thought uh, in terms of your theory George Graham the stroller who was nothing like a manager as he was a player. Couldn't have been more opposite. All right, right. well, you're going to come up with at least 10 examples. Sorry to just cut you straight down just like that. Okay, fair enough. Um, Listen, we'll we'll definitely do something on that at some point. Um, By the way, if you want to read Amy's piece about Thomas Partey or any of the other... I've got to finish it first. Well, one, she's got to finish it. And two, when she does, uh, you can do so exclusively via The Athletic if you're not already a member... If you're not already a member, head to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod for a third off a subscription now. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Better a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Yes, this is handbrake off Ian Stone, James McNicholas, Amy Lawrence, and joined by Art De Roche. Hello, Art. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me again. That's all right, Art. You're watching the uh, Women's FA Cup final. Uh, normally, the women can be uh, 
useful in sort of lifting the gloom when the men do what they did uh, last night, but not at the weekend. I mean, they got absolutely mullered by Chelsea, didn't they? I mean, I mean, it it was one nil at half time. It could have been about four or five, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, from kickoff, it, you just saw Chelsea were a different level. I think um, obviously their goal came within the first three minutes of the game, but as you mentioned, I mean, Sam Kerr and, and Frank Kirby just ran ran the first half. Really, it could have been easily 5-0. They were quite lucky. I think Chelsea hit the bar in the first half. And the post, Ma- I think. Yeah, and the post. Um, Manuela Zinsberg had, played, had to play quite well yeah. <laughs> to keep the score down as long as she did. And then in in the second half, you, you'd you think, oh, they're, they're quite lucky that it's still 1-0. They might be able to have some sort of chance, but Chelsea just steamrolled them even more in the second half. And it was just... Uh, a terrible, a terrible game. <laughs> it was really. James, did you mention, uh, I think you tweeted about Leah Williamson um, not playing and how l- the lack of pace in centre-half and uh, in defence generally just really hurt us. Oh, I wish that was me. That sounds very clever. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know who that was. I was at the game though and Arsenal defensively really looked vulnerable. Like Art says, from the first whistle, they conceded really on. And I think that played into a bit of nerves. I think playing out from the back, Chelsea sensed a vulnerability there and they pressured, they harried, they you know, they forced errors from Arsenal. It really was just a game where Arsenal never got going in any meaningful way. Chelsea were superbly dominant throughout, as much as it pains me to say it. And I had exactly the same feeling as Art, of, you know, being in this slightly fortuitous position at half-time. A bit like the men's team, frankly, at Goodison Park, and thinking they might be able to capitalise that on that in the second. Uh, just didn't come to pass. And I was a bit... Sorry, James. I was a bit gutted, actually. We didn't equalise because we had chances in the last 15 minutes. We suddenly... It was such a weird game because the first half hour they completely dominated. In the last 15 minutes, we were sort of on top, even though we did look a bit sort of fragile when they broke. But I thought we had chances to equalise. And I thought if we do equalise, we could go on and win this. In those moments, I think the the main thing were, yes, those chances came, but you're almost relying on set pieces um, for most of it, which wasn't uh, great. Vivian Miedemar was just off it all game. She was. Um, Early in the game, she had a few touches that were very loose. Then I think she had that opportunity just outside the box where she tries to bend it into the top corner and it just... I actually don't know where the ball went. It, 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 it went somewhere. Yeah, very. Is where yeah. It was. <laughs> so if if you wanted to sum up the game, that's that's kind of the moment I guess you'd go for. Oh, I want to ask you as well about the momentum of the season. I mean, it was going so well. We beat Chelsea on the first game of the season, and I guess there was a difference. They had players missing. And then they went on this amazing run and uh, then they played Spurs and they were on top against Spurs a lot of the game, but they were sort of lucky to get away with a one-all at the end. They got stuffed by Barcelona. Is there a feeling that the season could uh, could sort of fall apart a little bit? I think it's an interesting one because even after that first game of the season against Chelsea, Emma Hayes was fairly confident, I'd say, after the game. Um, she she yeah. made the point that she, she had deliberately rested players who were playing in the Olympics, whereas Arsenal hadn't chosen to do that. Um, We've seen, I guess, since the season started, there have been weeks where, say, Vivian Miedemar has been rested, Nikita Paris has been rested from the international breaks, but all Chelsea's Olympians were given rest during the summer. 
So I think they've probably, in terms of momentum, they they just kind of pick up steam and keep going. Whereas Arsenal, when when you do have to pick and choose your moments when to finally give those players rest that they didn't get in the summer, you do then just lose a bit of that momentum. And when you consider, yes, Arsenal play Chelsea in the FA Cup final and then they play Barcelona straight off the back of another international break, you're almost thinking, <laughs> well, this is very scary. Um, and I think the the main thing going into the Barcelona game, I don't think anyone would really be expecting a win against a team like Barcelona, even though it is at home. But you're, you're hoping to see a, a more imposing performance, I guess, because against Chelsea... They just couldn't. They couldn't get anything started from from whether that be from the centre backs coming forward or from Leo Volti at the the base of midfield. Um, the distances were just way too big, and they just couldn't get a foothold in the game. So you're probably hoping that they will be able to. And I think one, I guess, optimistic <laughs> uh, view of it could be that they trained at the Emirates last week uh, on Friday. So maybe they're. They hopefully are a bit more used to the the bigger pitch than than is at Meadow Park. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting because obviously it is a different pitch to the one they're normally accustomed to, and it might actually suit Barcelona to be on that bigger pitch. What do you think? Uh, how should the women's team best approach that game? I mean, I think from what I've seen of them this season, they've been at their best when they've been quite direct in their way they play. Do you think that's their best chance of hurting this Barcelona side? Yeah, I think when you see the strengths of this side, it is them being a lot more structured than they were under Joe Montemurro. Uh, I'd say Montemurro was almost completely like a fluid kind of coach. You just play football. There's There are obviously instructions that come with that, but it's a lot more free-flowing. Whereas with this team, especially in that game against Chelsea on the opening day, you saw they were defending very compact and they were just looking to hit on the break. That counter-attacking side of the team has been there throughout the season, but I don't think in these games they've... Um, so against Chelsea in the cup final and then also in the, the first game against Barcelona, I think they probably expected to be able to play their game too too easily, I guess, rather than, I guess, respecting is probably not the right word, but uh, maybe altering your game a little bit to to see where you can control... Uh, certain situations even if you don't have the ball um, and I think that's something Edeval's kind of spoken about where and I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast where you you can't really practice that and until you face those challenges so that's where experience is going to come like it's going to be very important for this group you see with Chelsea they've probably experienced that over the past five six years this Arsenal group have nowhere near that level of experience neither as a, a team or just as individuals because even when you look at uh, the England team you're almost hoping Arsenal players are getting picked like Jordan Nobbs um, Beth Mead rather than expecting them to like say Chelsea's players like Frank Kirby uh, or or Sam Kerr for Australia who is one of the best strikers in the world so I think there's obviously still so many levels to go um, until they're probably comfortable 
in in those environments. Seems to be the message of the podcast today. <laughs> you know, some promise, but still a long way to go. Um, around 10,000 tickets uh, have been sold for the Barcelona game on Thursday. It's been confirmed by the club. Uh, but um, it, it, I'm definitely getting into it. I watched uh, I watched the cup final and I was, I was quite sort of annoyed with uh, Emma Hayes at one point. I love her as a pundit, but uh, she's quite punchy as a uh, as a coach, and especially when she's a coach on the opposing teams. Uh, so get down to the Emirates on Thursday night. Let's have a song uh, to finish the podcast. Art, oh, you were here last. We're going to get you on first for the song. What have you got for us? Uh, I'm going to go for Average Man by Obi Trice because Arsenal looked very average last night. They looked average at Wembley. And of, uh, so hopefully some people know about Shady Records from the early 2000s, but of that kind of collective, Obi Trice was definitely the average man <laughs> in that group. So to sum up Arsenal, I'm going to go for that. I went to see Obi Trice in a pub in South London two years ago. <laughs> No uh, way. Yeah, yeah. I sort of couldn't believe that he was doing it. I saw a poster and it was just like some little pub. Obi Trice was there doing all his hits from the early noughties. Um, he was average, but enjoyable. I enjoyed yeah. it. I say, I yeah, I like him. I like him, but he is average. I would have killed for average last night, I'll be honest with you. Um, <laughs> James, what about you? Well, I... I'm a glutton for punishment. I went to the Women's Cup final, saw us lose to Chelsea, went to Everton, saw us lose to them. So I had to pick uh, a blues song. <laughs> so I went for BB King, The Thrill Is Gone. Oh, painful. Uh, Amy is nodding there sagely. What have you got for us, Amy? Uh, I am going to go back to the 80s to one of my all-time favourite bands and favourite records, which is The The, Soul Mining, and a track called The Sinking Feeling. <laughs> I can't help with the happiness at this point. Paul, uh, who is on Twitter, Paul17767954, catchy, t- catchy name, Paul, um, he suggested for me, basically, it was from The Jam, uh, So Sad About Us. So sad. which is just a brilliant trip on a jam, but uh, sums up how we're all feeling. Uh, hopefully a happier pod at some point next week. Thanks to our, thanks to James, thanks to Amy, and thanks to Abby, our producer. I've been Ian Stone, and I'll see you soon. ta up. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.